0: Alright, we continue this morning, after having prayed, we continue in the book of Isaiah. We are in Isaiah chapter 48, and I want to uh, pause here for a minute, because a lot of us weren't even here last week, pause for a minute and talk about this Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16, before we move on. I'm going to read this out of two different translations here. And the reason, and this concerns the Trinity. And I want to make sure we're all clear on this doctrine. Because if you remember a couple of months ago, I was reading out of one of Gordon Clark's books. And I think it was John Robbins that made the statement that the big problem with the church now is that we just do not know anything about the Trinity. We don't teach it anymore and people don't really know very much about it. And several high-powered theologians I've read have made the statement that every heresy in the church comes from a misunderstanding of the Trinity. And so it's extremely important that we understand the Trinity. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's hard to do that if you don't know anything about Him or if you don't know Him. So we're going to pause just for a minute. And it's what brought my attention to this is the translation difference. I'm going to read this first of all in the New American Standard Bible, Isaiah 48 verse 16. And this is the last part of the verse. And it says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. That is 16. I guess it would be part D of that verse, the very last phrase in it. And now the Lord God has sent me, capitalized me. The translators realize that's talking about the second person of the Trinity. And his spirit. So we have all three persons of the Trinity mentioned in that phrase there. Now that's virtually how it's translated in every translation I read. Except for the King James, New King James. And I will read it from that now. And now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Now I don't have an analytical commentary on Isaiah, but I don't see how in the world the King James, New King James translators did that. Um, Just a plain reading of the Hebrew would go right along with what the New American Standard Bible says and the other translations. Plus. The verb "have" or "has" there is singular. Singular. It's not in the plural. It doesn't say "has" have, "have" sent me. It's "has" sent me. Uh, and now the Lord God has sent me in my spirit, not the Lord. Um, the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. If you have a New King James, if you look over in the margin, it says it's singular. Now, the reason this is, I think, is relative is because, let's look at the Nicene Creed. Page 846 in your hymnals. This is a creed of the early church. In 325. Um, I want to point out a couple of things in here. It it goes into some detail on all three persons of the Godhead. Um, The second paragraph, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. Um, In the Trinity the essential trinity, what we call the ontological trinity, the way God has been from eternity past and will be from eternity future in all His essentials. He says He's begotten of the Father before all worlds. Now, Jesus has always been, or the second person of the Trinity has always been begotten of the Father. There was not a certain time where all of a sudden the Son was begotten. It's been that way from all eternity. That's the eternal begetting of the Son. And then at a certain time in history, the second person of the Trinity took on a body. He became incarnate. uh, And He did everything necessary to save us. So in this creed, we say the Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Okay? And it shows, goes on to say he's essentially the same as, as the Father. He's a God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Jesus wasn't created. He wasn't, I mean, the second person Trinity wasn't created. He wasn't made. He was of one substance with the Father. <coughs> the Father communicated the person. Not the essence, but the person. Alright, and now, Go down to the last paragraph, you get the doctrine taught of the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, the way the New King James translates this is, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. The Spirit has sent me. The sun. At first I thought, well, that's pretty much a heretical translation. <laughs> but even if that translation is right, it fits in theologically. With what what we're does mind. the KJV say? Same thing. Usually the New King James translates all those errors there in the King James. Are you James. going
1: to tell us why they did that?
0: I don't know. I don't have an analytical commentary. What about
1: the Geneva line?
0: Lord and his spirit has sent me yeah, yeah. yeah but the if you have an interlinear, it shows the Lord God has sent me and his spirit just like the New American Standard Bible. And like I said the verb there is in the singular. it demands it be the Lord God has sent me and his Spirit
1: the ESV is identical to the New American Standard, but they didn't capitalize me. Okay, it's left
0: it lowercase. All right. Now, the reason that the New King James is theologically not wrong is because we have the what we call the ontological Trinity: God in all His essence. There's been three persons forever, and. Their relationships have always been the same. God cannot change. The Son has always been begotten by the Father. The Spirit has always proceeded from the Father and the Son. He is spirated. But, for the economy of redemption, the Spirit has sent the Son. Um, Jill. This was the first one we were supposed to look up. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Whenever you get to that, we will see um, that the Spirit does send the Son. Okay, go ahead.
1: The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn.
0: Alright, Isaiah is prophesying here in New Covenant times. And the very first thing he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And then he says to preach good tidings to the poor. And then he says, He has sent me to heal the broken So in the economy of redemption to to redeem us, the Spirit has sent the Son. Remember, the Virgin Mary was um, overpowered by the Holy Spirit. And after Jesus received His baptism, the Spirit sent Him into the wilderness to be tempted. So I think it's important for us to understand these kind of things. <clears throat> because if we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we need, to, we need to know what the Scriptures teach about Him. So what is said in the economic trinity of redemption is not necessarily the same thing we would say because the relationship changes between God and the creation. And even though God never changes, that doesn't mean He doesn't act in history. The eternal Son of God became man he took on a, a body, and so that's why the New King James is not necessarily heretical for translating it that way, even though I think they translate it wrong. You have got to realize there's a difference in relationships when you talk about in the in the roles, and a difference in the roles when you talk about the economic trinity of redemption and the ontological. Trinity, which speaks of the essential properties of God. Alright, anybody have anything they want to add to that? Charles.
1: Uh, The importance of this particular issue is seen in that disagreement over the procession of the Spirit from either the Father and the Son or just one is what led to the first major split in the Christian Church between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, there were other things going on, but the Orthodox accused the Catholic Church of um, having added something to the Nicene Creed where we say proceeds from the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. And if you, to this day, any Orthodox Church you attend, they don't say and the Son. They say just from the Father. Yeah. I mean, they were completely mistaken in accusing Western Christianity of having added it was already there yeah. in the Creed, mainly because of what Scripture teaches.
0: And that was the uh, one of the main reasons for the split. And Charles, I don't know if you're prepared to do this or not, but can you tell us why it's so important that they, they thought it was so important that the uh, Spirit proceeds only from the Son? I mean, well, only from the Father.
1: Well, I mean, there, there are ripples of implications about what happens if you have one view or the other. But... One of those, and I, I think it's, it's one of those things that's sort of on the surface that people don't necessarily pay that close attention to, but it has powerful implications, is that sociologically, in other words, how this plays out in society, it creates a real problem for monarchs and tyrants who say, you know, I am the focus of the divine on earth. You know, it's between me and God and I, then dispense it to you. There's no other intermediary. And so when you have a view such as what's expressed in the our version of the Nicene Creed and also the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, because, see, we were talking about people at a time when they, their view was that kings and later popes, of course, but kings especially and emperors, were the place where the divine intersected with the, the earthly plane. And so uh, the emperor, especially after the Roman Empire became officially Christianized, uh, the emperor was considered divine, in, in a small, d sense, a conduit for God's grace. And now we see how that has developed in our country, in our time, that the government is the dispenser of all grace and goodness, and will determine for you what's right or wrong. Don't they, don't they say the same thing about the
2: icons? That's the interaction between the divine and the earthly. But what generated
1: that controversy was that people wanted to venerate images of the emperor. They were already doing it. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, the, the claim was is that no, the emperor represents God Almighty. So we're not worshiping the emperor. We're worshiping God Almighty in the form of the emperor or the king.
0: What Charles was talking about is there in the third paragraph of the Creed where it says, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father... And the sun. let's call the Filioque clause. So if anybody ever mentions the filioque clause, you know what they're talking about. And the sun. All right, anything else on that? All right, we will then proceed to the rest of the chapter. Um, and we will get to you people over here in just a minute that are, have scriptures to read but first of all we need to read this passage and so I'll put Mike here next mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the chapter verses 17 through 22 okay.
2: thus says the Lord your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit Who leads you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being would have been like a river. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand. And your offspring like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. Declare with a sound of joyful shouting, Proclaim this, Send it out to the end of the earth, say the Lord, Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord.
0: Okay, in your notes there, in verse 17 through 19, God informs them of the blessings they have missed or the blessings they have forfeited because they did not heed His commandments. And, uh, same is true for us. When we do not obey God, we miss out on blessings. God made this world. He knows what makes us tick, so to speak. He has told us in His Word. And we miss out on blessings when we don't follow His commandments. And the people of Israel did not. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, All day long have I held out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. All through the Old Testament. Alright, so forfeited blessings. Alright, and then in verse 20... Uh, in your notes, he gives them more commands. They are, first of all, to leave Babylon. He says, Go forth from Babylon, free from the Chaldeans. And then he says, Declare His praises. Same verse he says, Declare with the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. The Great Commission existed just as... Clearly in the Old Testament is in the New Testament. He says, uh, in verse eight, 19, excuse me, um, verse 20, he says, declare this and send it out to the end of the earth. That's the Great Commission. It's not as full as what we have in the New Testament because it doesn't mean, uh, mention baptism. But it is the same in substance. All right, let's have Psalm ninety-six, one through three, read. Sing to the Lord, new song. Sing to the Lord, all the
1: earth. Sing to the
0: Lord, praise His name. Proclaim will His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all people. In Psalm ninety-six, there's they are to sing a new song again. We've been through that before. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. And Psalm 98, 1 through 2.
1: Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things.
0: His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. It does not say He has revealed His righteousness to Israel. Although He did that, but it was in the sight of all the nations. Alright, all these uh, singing praises to the Lord. Let's have 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 read and turn to that passage too.
2: the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once
0: were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Alright. Peter tells them to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called them. Just like the Old Covenant people were to do. And just like the Old Covenant people were a chosen race. Peter is telling these New Covenant Christians they are a chosen race. Just as God told the Old Covenant people that they were his priest. Uh, he's telling them they are a holy priesthood and a holy nation. And uh, so we have the continuity here of the Old Covenant Israel with the New Covenant church. They have now received mercy. They once were not a people of God. And now they are to proclaim His excellencies. So the same things that were demanded of the people of the old covenant now we see. And Peter tells them, guess what? You're the same. And God requires the same thing from you. So they are to proclaim, as your notes say there, that He is the Redeemer. Alright, turn on back to Isaiah 48 now. And in your notes, God has been faithful to His people In the past. As we read what he did in verse 21. They did not thirst when he led him through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rocks. And he split the rocks. And water gushed forth. So he was faithful. And so they should trust and obey. Based on what I've done for the past. Israel for you. Why can't you trust me? Why can't you obey me? Why do I still have to reach out my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people? So they should trust and obey because they were to have a second exodus. And uh, Charles, can you look up... I mean, Bud, can you look up for us Isaiah 66... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Isaiah 66, 24 and Charles Romans 5, 1. Isaiah forty eight twenty two says there is no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. There is no peace for the wicked. That's that's pretty bad. We're talking about for all eternity. We're not talking about just till you die. God says there is no peace <coughs> for the wicked. And uh it gets even worse. Read your passage for us, Bud. Sixty-six, twenty-four.
2: They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be a horror to all
0: flesh. This passage is quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. That their worm does not die. No peace here. They'll go go forth and look on the corpses of men. They've transgressed against Him, but their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's their future. That's the future of those, all those who reject Yahweh, especially of those who reject His Son. He doesn't take it lightly. When you reject His gift, God doesn't like it when you reject His gift. Alright, Romans 5-1. From the ESV. Therefore,
1: since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Only through Jesus Christ do we have peace. You accept what God gives you, which is his Son. You believe in Him. He loves you. You have a wonderful future. You reject God's Son. His wrath is upon you. And things will only get worse. There will never be any peace for those who reject. God's son. He doesn't take it lightly when you reject his gift. All right. Anybody have anything else they want to add to Isaiah 48? All right. Isaiah 49 is next. And something wicked. That, uh, I guess I didn't get that one. They can trust or, or, and obey, or they can be wicked. The result is if they don't trust and obey, they will continue to have no peace. Instead of peace like a river. And they will never enter his rest. Instead, things will get worse. Okay. One of you young people over here want to hand out some papers? Thank you so much. Okay, Isaiah forty nine, let's have it read. And uh find the place here. Um Elaine, you can read let me see I'm First four verses of Isaiah forty-nine. Listen to me, approach lands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord
1: called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, He named my name.
0: He made my mouth like a sharp sword; in the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in His quiver; He hid me away. He said to me, "You are My servant." Israel, in whom I will be glorified, to say through four? Yes. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Remember, I guess a month or two ago, I said there were four servant songs in Isaiah. We have just come upon the second one. The first one was in 42, 1 through 9. i just read the first verse of that. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. All right, this is the second one. Um, now, it's so what we have here in your notes. This is the second of four servant songs in Isaiah. And I've listed the other ones there for you. Um, 42, 1-9, 54-9, 52, 13-53, 12. Now, if you're reading other commentators, they could have a slight variation on the uh, verses there. They could add one or subtract one. All right, we are at a point in Isaiah now where I said we are at the second servant song and we are starting chapter 49. Now, in 49 we enter what's called the atonement part. This is a book called Who Shall Ascend to the Mountain of the Lord. An excellent book. It's done by Michael Morales. Anybody know who he is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, a professor over at Rainbow Theological Seminary. And he's good. Yeah. And this is a commentary on Leviticus. And, but it really is... he can, He goes into all of the Old Testament. He is very thorough... And he hits Isaiah about three quarters of the way through this book, and he has such a good overview. I wanted to read this to you. I think it's excellent in showing where we are. And it's it's kind of an extended thing, it's a couple of pages. And in the middle of it he has an outline. Uh Isaiah forty two through forty four is basically promises of redemption. Um forty-two and forty-three is basically release. Forty-three and forty-four is forgiveness. And then beginning in forty four twenty-four, instead of promises of redemption, there's agents of redemption. First of all, there's Cyrus, up through where we have read today. And then after that Comes the servant, and the subject is atonement. The ser- the Cyrus is liberation. Remember, Cyrus set him free. And now we have servant, atonement. So now we're reading about God's, not God's servant, Cyrus, but God's servant, Jesus Christ, who brings us atonement. And so the subject is basically Jesus Christ here, beginning with what we are getting into today. Let me read this to you. It will take probably four or five minutes to read it. But pay attention. It is really good in setting our uh, sights on where we are now, setting our position. He says in this, needless to say, the historical return from exile did not usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Nor was it an exodus to make the previous one out of Egypt pale by comparison. As to the rebuilt house of God, many of the elderly priests, Levites, and leaders of Jerusalem wept as they recalled the greater splendor of Solomon's temple. In other words, when they returned to the land, all wasn't quite so good. You know, they were still wicked and they didn't have too much of a temple compared to what they had. These considerations, along with a manifest lack of renewal in their hearts, in the hearts of the Jewish returnees, served to foster the understanding that Israel was indeed still in exile. So even though they were physically there, they were spiritually still in exile still awaiting the glorious and new exodus, an apocalyptic expectation that would lead the flock of God to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion. It is possible, moreover, to discern already in the prophets a prediction that the promised restoration would take place in a twofold manner. By a physical return from Babylon followed by a spiritual return. Remember Paul says in this glorious resurrection chapter that first is the natural and then the spiritual. So that's where we're getting to. So first they have their physical return followed by a spiritual return. The new exodus. In Isaiah, for example, Gentry, and I'm not sure what Gentry he's talking about here. I'm not sure if it's Ken or another one. Gentry discerns the following symmetrical outline as part of a larger structure. That's the outline I just explained to y'all. According to this literary plan, there are two distinct aspects of restoration. First, the release of Israel, which is through 4321, parallel to the agent of that release, Silas. And secondly, the spiritual redemption, 4322 to 4423 accomplished by the servant. More plainly, part of the book of Daniel addresses this purpose, this precise issue of a post-exilic expectation, informing the faithful community that while there would be a return to Judea after Jerusalem's prophesied 70 years, the full restoration would not come before another 70 weeks of years or 490 years, during which four world kingdoms would dominate before God's kingdom was inaugurated by the Son of Man. Parallel imagery of Daniel 2 pictures the Son of Man of the kingdom of God as a stone that after crushing the Colossus' four kingdoms grows into a mountain an image that not only illustrates the principle of the kingdom's humble origin and steady growth, but also conveys the profound mystery of the divine will in cultic terms. The Davidic stone will be rejected and then exalted as the chief cornerstone of God's temple, growing into the cosmic mountain of God, into the abode of God, the temple. It may also be argued that Ezekiel's vision of dry bones contains the principle of a two-step process of restoration inasmuch as a resurrection takes place in two stages. First, the bodies come together through the prophesying, and then they are made to live through the ruah, the wind breath. In other words, don't get confused about the fact that some of these prophecies of restoration are just physical. That that comes first. That's what a lot of these are. But where we're starting now, we're starting into the spiritual part of the restoration. They weren't restored restored all at once. Just like when we're redeemed, our 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 souls are redeemed, but our bodies aren't redeemed until uh, resurrection day. <clears throat> Israel's historic return from Babylon to form a nation once more was a resurrection of the sort. A feat for the nations to behold. But the fact of the matter is that Israel, while reconstituted as a body, had remained without the spirit of life. So there was no real spirit of life in them when they were restored. Arguably the central promise of a new exodus. <clears throat> and we're just about through. Finally, a statement in Hosea six two also accords with a two-stage restoration. Which says, after two days, He will revive us. <clears throat> Third day, He'll raise us up. Last paragraph. While exile meant death for Israel theologically, it took the uneventful return from Babylon laced with hardship and a stumbling back into the former sins to drive the point home. Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, was not merely a characteristic of life in Babylon, but of Israel's national heart. Israel was dead spiritually in darkness. The return to Judea served only to clarify both the diagnosis and the prophesied remedy. Upon the outpouring of the Spirit, and only then, would Israel become the new Israel, the Israel that had been resurrected from Sheol and ushered into the heavenly abode of God. So to me, that clarifies some of these prophecies of restoration. You've got to distinguish whether it's the natural first or the spiritual later. First, God restores the people to the land. They're still dead. And then finally at Pentecost, uh, after Jesus comes, uh, they are... Restored spiritually. And so we have a divide here where he starts concentrating more on the spiritual characteristics uh, than the physical. Alright, anybody have any comments on that? I, I hated to read that long to you, but I, I was hoping it would be helpful. It was very helpful to me. Alright, so next week we will hopefully get all of chapter 49 in. And um Bud, I'll have you to pray for us today. <clears throat> oh,